I find really annoying when you have so many things. Well, that's that's very true. I am I am an annoying person. Uh, what? No. And, How? <laughs> okay, moving but, on. You know when you have different recipes that come from different places and there's inconsistency with the recipes like if you have a french recipe it will say a soup spoon full of you know sugar or whatever and you're like i don't know what that is in ground what is a soup spoon right right? no okay i'm with you there 100 percent. like you said to me you gave me the recipe uh for for the lithuanian donuts and it said a teaspoon of baking powder Baking soda. And then I had to tell you that in Lithuania, when they say a teaspoon, they literally mean take a teaspoon out of your cupboard and use it. And I had used like a measurement of a teaspoon because that's what I think. And and then you have like an American recipe and it will say one block of butter or whatever it is. uh, What what do they call it? A stick of butter. A stick of butter, yeah. Yeah. And you're like, what does that mean? Please just give me that in grams. Well, you can always ask Siri, how much is a stick of butter in grams? And I think it's 113, if I remember correctly. But it's or just some, extra somewhere maths, around there. I know. Honestly, yeah. like there's yeah. just extra steps. Yeah. And I don't know why there isn't consistency within like recipes. Well, we're arriving at the problem with imperial measurements, really. Why? Well, because they're non standardized. They're, they're like abstract. What is a stick of butter? What is a foot? You know? Well, no, but a foot is always 12 inches. That's, that's fine. Okay, a stick or of butter is always 12 inches. No, well. <laughs> No. big stick of butter <laughs> um no but it's like a certain measurement in grams it is quantified it is defined right you can look this information up and it is available it's always consistent it's always the same but it is unclear because it's derived from some sort of an arcane practice like oh a foot is obviously you know that many cent no it's not because hey, you know, feet are many different do you things. know what i did find out well a foot is a standardized measurement now well, right? exactly but, so is a stick of butter but, but like it's unclear it, to a foreign person who doesn't use feet measurements because they think that a foot is a foot, you know? Like. Okay, but I think, I don't know. I think most people, like, even if you don't, if you can't calculate imperial measurements, you are aware of them, no? That I mean, they exist, like, inches and feet. And I mean, I'm still and... confused by stones, you know, like, how many stones do you weigh? I'm sorry, I, I don't normally weigh stones to begin with. <laughs> well, because they were based on actual stones or actual feet or it's whatever. The same you with know. a stick of butter. Well, it's yeah, annoying no, when you don't know it. That's fair. Yeah, that's a very good point. Once you know it, you know it, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but do you know what I did find out that I thought was quite interesting? Go on. Is that your foot is the same length as the distance between your elbow and your wrist bone. Right. So is not the standardized not imperial the, foot. No, Again, this no. is why imperial measurements are incredibly frustrating if you put your foot up against your uh arm Mm -hmm. right it should be the same length as from your elbow to your wrist bone that's kind of cool isn't it uh but also uh what has this got to do with you you you've got some secret board game tie-in here happening right is there some sort of standardized board game measurement that you're gonna inform me about just any moment but i think it's interesting that board games are pretty standardized so if you say a hand of cards that you know what that means like it it's either either it's going to be an x amount of cards right Mm -hmm. an indeterminate amount of cards or the rule book will say a hand of four cards a hand of five cards whatever it's always much clearer than a recipe do you know what really annoys me when like you have the standard ticket to ride size box right and it's it's defined by that but then there are people who make boxes that are slightly bigger 
or slightly smaller, and they look so annoying on a Calyx. And like, do you, do you put the smaller one above or the bigger one? Why? Why did you not? Anyway. Well, you do it above, no? Like in a pyramid. Sm- yeah, smaller one above, right? Yeah. but Otherwise you squash the little one. Yeah, I guess. It's just frustrating. It just looks so displeasing aesthetically. And it's it's harder to measure into a Calyx how many Ticket to Ride size boxes can go into a cubby. Because normally you can get away with like four if you put like three and then one sideways, I think. If they are Ticket to Ride sized, if they're not... Oh, it's just yeah. We need we need more standardized box sizes as well. Or standardized shelf sizes, like because mm. we as a gaming community well, have adopted is, the Calyx. It's but pretty the Calyx, standardized. The Calyx was not invented for storing board games, right? No. So we've kind of reverse engineered that, I guess. Honestly, and now the board we're moaning game, about it. The board game industry is what keeps the IKEA conglomerate going. Um, but uh, you know, I just got a I just got a board game in a tube the the other day like the board game looks pretty cool right like but it's in a tube come on how am i we please don't don't well, we got a load of uh play mats that are in tubes no i know but they they are already hard to store now i have to figure out how to store this board game in a tube that where it like takes up a sensible amount of space and not an annoying space it was delivered in the triangle box as well which is i was just like all kinds of things it, are it's, happening it's on, here. i said it was a t- giant Toblerone. yeah and it no wasn't. it was not it was just it was just a tube that had a board game inside uh what a journey Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with moi, Elaine, and toi, Efka. On today's show, we'll be talking about Undaunted Battle of Britain, Hamlet, and Autobahn. But first, we've had a couple of comments about Sky Mines from the previous episode and its depiction of space colonialism. Jay says, People who push back on anti-racist efforts often say things like, Well, I didn't do the racism. I wasn't even born. But even though systemic racism doesn't necessarily imply intention from someone in present times, it should still be acknowledged and corrected because there are people who were harmed or still are. To me, the fact that there aren't space natives in Sky Mines takes away the icky bits of colonialism and tends towards exploration and exploitation. Thank you for your email. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think for me, much more often, I'm, I'm, I'm bothered by something that, like the email says at the end, is exploitative because you're still, you're still putting exploitation on the table. And different people will react differently to that. I'm not saying that like, it's necessarily bad to be like, oh yeah, you know, like, you know, I recognize the issues with this, but I'm kind of okay uh, with, with that experience myself. And I think that's fine. But also uh, this game might land on a lot of people's tables where it might not be fine, where they, they have agency to be a bit nasty about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I see where the comment is going. And I do agree with that in a sense, like Mm -hmm. this type of game or sky mines type of game is much more comfortable to me than something that has, that is based on real world history. Um, And I think that's pretty evident for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. But my problem with the space exploitation is that who is doing this space exploitation when you're playing sky mines, you know, Am I playing as myself, as Britain? Like, it's not going to be Britain that's going to these places, is it? <laughs> on, on on our own. Like, it's not going to be us. So or maybe it is. But is like, if you have a situation where the literally the entire earth works together, 
then I think that's fair. And then the, the resources are distributed throughout the earth, you know, well. But it's some sort of weird pipe dream. And then you will always have people in governments who are going to try and exploit that worse and, mm. and take advantage of that. And it, I, I don't know. It, it could be an interesting framework, but it would take so much care um, and storytelling nows to get that across. Uh, it can be done, but I don't think Skyminds hits that. I think it was just like, well, here is exploitation. Oh, okay, cool. On the other side of that, Daniel says, really appreciated the discussion on colonialism in space. It's something I've struggled with in light of games like Arnak. That school of colonial archaeology wouldn't be tolerated for real world cultures, but is waved away for fantasy cultures, even though it's normalizing the same behavior. I didn't even notice that in Anno 1800. I remember when we played it, I was like, is this colonialism? The board game, not the video game. The video game is very obviously colonialist. But I was just like, is there, is this really, because you just, and then you kind of like look into the real world history, which I was prompted by like, uh, shut up and sit down podcasts, exploration of Anno 1800. And they filled in a lot of gaps for me. I was like, oh, right. Okay. There's like still a lot of knowledge that I'm missing. And yet there's just a lot of colonialism here. That's very overt. And I didn't even notice it. Right. Everything is, has to be based on our human experience. Yeah. Mm. And Emma says, one of the reasons that I really like Circadian's First Light is that it takes 4X and turns it on its head. Sam McDonald as designer and Shem Phillips as developer deliberately chose to make a statement and show that you can have heavy games where you as newcomers are friendly with the locals, cooperative and negotiate with them, respecting their homeland, rather than trying to colonise, exterminate and drain every last possible resource from it. Something that is rarely shown, if ever, within our hobby or beyond it. I've never played Circadian. Circadian's first light, but we do have a review copy of Circadian's Chaos Order. I believe there's a sequel to that game, so I'm much more excited to check it out now. Thank you for your comments, and if you have anything to say to us, email elaine at nopunincluded.com. Let's talk about our first game. Undaunted Battle of Britain is a review copy that comes from publisher Osprey Games by designers Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson with artist Roland MacDonald. So this would be the fifth entry in the Undaunted series. We had Undaunted Normandy, then Undaunted North Africa, then Undaunted Reinforcements, then Undaunted Stalingrad, and now finally Battle of Britain. Which takes Undaunted in a new direction, and uh, we've uh, discussed this in the previous bonus episode of Doc Cardboard, uh, our early impressions. After just one play, we weren't super jazzed about it. And now after more plays, we have uh, a bit of a broader picture. So if you're familiar with Undaunted, you know exactly what's going on. It's a deck builder set in World War II. Um, snappy, you play cards, you move soldiers. Uh, they fight in various skirmishes that depict real historical battles, uh, and they're often centered around a specific, you know, sort of part of World War II. Uh, so in this case, it is, it is you know, the, the Dunkirk part of it, the, the Battle of Britain, where you're flying airplanes, uh, Britain versus Germany. And the airplanes is the big new part, because all previous iterations of Undaunted uh, took place on the ground. Uh, you had vehicles in some of them, like tanks and, you know, armored cars. Now you're flying airplanes. So the system had a bit of an overhaul, but it is still primarily the same idea. You, you, you draw from your deck, you have four cards, you pitch one for initiative, then the cards activate that you play, activate various 
units that you have on the map and then you can do certain actions with them. We've been hot and cold on Undaunted, both at the same time. You've always been a big fan, haven't you? And I grew to appreciate it. I think for me, the culmination was very much Stalingrad, which is a much bigger box than the previous ones. It's a sort of a campaign style game where each battle affects the outcome of the other battles. You have casualties, you have various different events that shake up the conflict and you have terrain that gets destroyed and that permanently you know affects future scenarios it was it was really cool and for me where undaunted finally found its place because i find the high strategy and high randomness mesh not to be to my particular liking, because there is a lot of variability, but also it's an incredibly strategic game. It's very fast paced, it's quick, you know, a game takes 30 minutes. Uh, it, it, it's very good at simulating these battles and making you feel like you are part of it. Uh, and, and you know, the, the high stakes sort of cinematic ideal of World War II. And to some, I think that might be definitely uh, an off-putting part of undaunted and if you're not into that this this is never a game for you no nor battle of britain nor any of these but we have this big culmination with stalingrad and i remarked in in uh, in the previous episode saying that it feels very much like almost like we had avengers endgame and then now we're doing these weird back to basics (laughs) but like kind of taking it in into a new direction and I think that observation still remains true for me. I'm I'm a bit more warm towards Battle of Britain uh, after having played more of it, but it it, it does feel like in an, an elaboration that is going to be very much appreciated by very established fans of Undaunted, and maybe a little bit lost on some of the others. I'm gonna try and fill in a little bit of the, of the uh, you know the genre as a whole of uh, of board games simulating aerial battles, right? So it, it's it's long been a thing. We've had uh, whether you have something like Memoir 44, which is another World War II uh, based war game where you you also had expansions that introduced airplanes, or you had like games like Wings of Glory and X Wing. Uh, or, you know, even even bigger and more detailed simulations. But what that always did is it made uh, aerial maneuverability an incredibly crunchy, meaty, and slow part of gameplay. I think many people who appreciate games like X-Wing uh, will say, well, this just makes that gameplay so much more streamlined, so much snappier, so much faster, because that is the nature of Undaunted. It is a faster game. But what it does to Undaunted is it makes Undaunted slower as a system. So as someone who's, who has, um, you know, a, a distant appreciation for Undaunted uh, and has enjoyed some parts of it quite a lot, but not all of them, I find myself in this weird spot where I, I appreciate this game and I think a lot of people will like it, but it's just not for me because ultimately it is like taking that core of undaunted and making it clunkier you 
like and daunted a lot more than I do. Do you feel the same way? Can I just add in something before I go into my thoughts on it? I just wanted to very slightly correct something you said. You said the Battle of Britain was Britain versus Germany. That's not true. There mm. was multiple nations involved in this. Oh, it no. was a, a huge operation. I'm talking about within the framework of this game specifically. It You're is, playing like the RAF yeah. versus the Luftwaffe. Yes, yeah, okay, exactly. fine. But, yeah. but they were there was multiple mm. nations involved in this. It wasn't just, you know, Britain uh i i did enjoy this i do like undaunted right um but i think the thing about undaunted that i liked and the same with memoir 44 is that there was it felt like a, almost a lack of control um mm -hmm. and it put you in the position of the soldiers that were being forced into doing this mm. rather than someone who was just rushing in um particularly in memoir 44 actually where you're not in control at all really of what you're doing <laughs> you know it's being decided for you um and and i think that battle of britain doesn't feel much different from the other undaunted and i think that maybe for me is a negative thing i don't think it does anything more interesting than the other undaunted did uh, and I agree with you, this is what we were discussing before, that Stalingrad felt very much like a pinnacle of what this game can do. Uh, and now adding something in that is uh, different, like using aerial combat, um, takes it in a different direction, but doesn't make it feel more interesting and does slow it down. And I think especially the first two games that we played, that well, I guess they were introductory scenarios, getting you used to what the planes did and, mm. and how they worked and the fact you have to move. That's that's a different thing, right? Because you have to move because they're a plane, right? You have to move uh, every turn. Those two first scenarios were incredibly slow and incredibly clunky. The The next ones that we played were more interesting because I guess because we were... I think Scenario 3 was still slow and clunky, honestly. It, it wasn't until Scenario 4 where it really picked up and it was like, okay, this is what this is actually about. But it took that long for the game to introduce itself, even to people who are already quite familiar with it. Yeah, I, I think that there is probably some strategy that that people could really latch onto and tap into with uh, Battle of Britain because the planes move in a very different way. There are uh, places they can kind of hide to get more cover. There's uh, bits of the sky that they potentially can't fly in because there's uh, barrage balloons, things like there's There's different things. Um but I don't think I tapped into that strategy well enough, maybe, because I just found it a bit like running through treacle in some points. Okay, so let me let me talk a little bit about the differences, and I, I hope it'll illustrate to people like why this is different, how it's different, and whether it's for them or not. So one of the big things is that the map is just so much bigger now, not in terms of physical presence, it's just that all the tiles have become hexagons and they're now much smaller, right? And so th there's just a lot more space for units to move through. And uh, they do move a lot because each airplane mo can move one or two or sometimes even three tiles, you know, in, in one movement. And like you said, they are forced to do that movement. Now, there's a new thing where you, you pretty much have to move in a straight line unless you don't also attack on your turn, in which case you can utilize the maneuver action, which lets you, after every move you make, pivot 
one way or another, you know, in a hexagonal kind of direction, left or right. And so what happens often, and this is what Undaunted has always been good at, is is that sort of emergent narrative in terms of like cinematically showing you what's happening. So your plane is, you know, on a collision course with another plane. They're obviously not going to hit each other. They're just going to fly past each other. But, you know, they're like sort of shooting at each other, uh, but then they fly past each other, right? And then because you can't just, you know, pivot 180 as an aeroplane and go back, you know, you have to slowly move around in a circle until that aeroplane gets back into position and and sort of um, and and the landscape of the battle has changed by then and and again that is simulationist and evocative probably of real battles and i appreciate that uh but for Undaunted, where the action was always so snappy and it was just like, right, that soldier gets behind cover, they're going to shoot pew pew, you know, oh, they're dead. Or, you know, like, or I remember even the more clunkier North Africa. I really enjoyed where they were like, there were drivers, you know, for cars. So you get you get a soldier into a Jeep, you put them behind the wheel, they drive up to another soldier, pick them up, then that soldier, you know, gets driven around to the other part of battle, they jump out, they go pew pew pew, you know, like, it's very emergent storytelling. What you get often with Undaunted Battle of Britain is that planes fly around in circles a lot, right? And whether you find that exciting or not, I think is going to determine whether you like Undaunted Battle for Britain or not. I think you're right, because it does do different things. Like some of the planes shoot from the back. So mm-hmm. you're trying to manoeuvre them into a position where they're actually facing away from the plane that you want to shoot. Uh, but I, I don't know. Maybe I just have some kind of undaunted fatigue. Maybe I have setting fatigue. That Because I think I would enjoy this game if it wasn't a war game. You know, I'd yeah. enjoy it in a different setting. And I wonder if it's just that I have a bit of fatigue with this. Because it does do some quite interesting things, the way you manoeuvre your plane. The, and I, I found it frustrating how you were like banking round and you're trying to get in position and you're trying to work out which hex it can land in mm. well. And and like I said, I think there is some kind of strategy that I did just wasn't able to tap into. And I think that could be quite exciting, but because when we were playing it, I just found it frustrating. I didn't enjoy it as much. Mm. It, it's definitely a game that requires more investment in terms of thinking, where will this aeroplane move? How will it pivot? You know, there's, there is a lot of nuance and strategy there. Uh, and I don't want to deny this game that, because I think it does a lot of things that are really cool and really interesting. For example, like you said, you know, the facing uh, of of where the aeroplane shoots matters. And also, if you can get behind an enemy aeroplane, you're rolling extra dice because, you know, you're shooting you them from bomb. the back. Yeah. Or there's these weird moments where, like, uh, because you if you shoot through another aeroplane um, into the aeroplane that you want to hit, so it's something in between you, you know, that aeroplane gets cover, effectively, including if there is an another aeroplane on your target's hex, right? So, and and that's like one additional defense for every airplane. So we had situations where there's like five airplanes in the same hex <laughs> and they're just all converged there for this one moment. And then they're all going to fly off in different directions. And it looks really cool. And there's, there's nice little like innovations on the system as well. There is the comms rule where uh, your squadrons are literally squadrons, like they're individual airplanes, but... Uh, 
you get fog of war cards, which are like dead cards that don't do anything. If you're trying to bolster them or, you know, you, you get that card that's like the eight initiative card that lets, you know, bolster or replay another card uh, that you've already played by that squadron. Uh, but if they're too far apart, they're out of comms range. So they're like in disarray. So you're adding... Discord cards. Uh, Discord cards. They used to be Fog of War cards, now they're Discord cards. And and the cool thing about them is that if you manage to remove them, you now get to draw another card, which is like a new rule that slightly changes up Undaunted, that feels so exciting in, in, in a way that you feel like, oh, I've been given a toy that I've never had, you know? So there are like these nice little moments. But I think what's at fault as well is, is the early scenarios are... Uh, there was scenario number two. I was just, I just thought is is an example of of the worst elements of scenario design. And scenario design is often the unspoken hero in in these games, where it was not a hero in this particular case because you just had to move this really slow aeroplane that moved only one hex to a target that it needed to bomb. And there were like a number of, I think there were four targets it needed to bomb. So you kind of plotted a course and then it went one square and then, sorry, hex, and then another hex, and then another hex, and then another hex. And then you you got to the hex, so you roll some dice, the dice hit. Okay, I don't need to fly around in a circle. I can continue on my path. And then another hex, and then another hex and then another hex, and then you roll some dice, and there are things happening around that, because you have, you know, other airplanes that are trying to defend them, you know, and the deck building matters, but 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 it's all incidental, because you're going to win or lose, dependent on whether you're going to roll the dice when it arrives to the place, and how, how frequently you draw the cards, you know, and in, in what order... You know, if you if you get all four cards of the same airplane, you have to pitch them one for one of them for initiative. So that's annoying. This is that kind of thing, you know. So just just drawing cards and rolling dice, which really kind of emphasize the worst elements of Undaunted mm. and not the best ones. Mm, yeah, I know what you mean. I I think the deck building decisions in this didn't feel as loose. It didn't feel like you had as much decision making as to how you built a deck because all you were trying to do was get as many units as you possibly could so in that you, particular scenario in, in that particular yeah. scenario so that you didn't lose comms for example because mm. once if you if you start with two of the same uh, plane in the same unit mm. um, and one of them goes down completely then the other one is is always, always out, out of comms, comms. Yeah. so you're always getting a disadvantage and you don't want it, you don't want that to happen yeah. so your decision is just buy as many as or like put in as many as I possibly can so that doesn't happen. Yeah, or also there's like this weird element where each scenario, because it's hexes, so they're never directly adjacent to one another. Like they're not at the same distance. One is a little bit further than the other, right? Um, so you always want to move the one that's behind first because then there's still one hex apart and they move like one, but it's it's this weird like little metagame that where if you draw the wrong one first, you probably want to pitch it for initiative. And I don't know, I just find that like very rote and not very fun. I just find it like minutia for the sake of minutia. And I know we are sounding super negative about Undaunted Battle for Britain because I think, once again, I just really want to emphasize, a lot of people will like this game. A lot of people like Undaunted and want more Undaunted. will get what they want. They'll get more Undaunted. 
I just don't think this is as good as the previous Undaunted's. I am going to say something which I wasn't sure I was going to say, but I'm going to say it because it's going to make me sound a bit insensitive. Battle of Britain, the other Undaunted's, I've been able to see it as a game and distance myself from the theming of it. Mm. A, a little bit. I mean, I know what it's about. I'm not stupid, right? And yeah. I, I feel for everyone that was in those battles, but the Battle of Britain was a lot more closer to home for me because um, we, Britain, uh, mainland Britain was not occupied by the Nazis. Mm. So I don't have experience of people firsthand telling me about that kind of thing, mm. but I do have experience of people telling me about how they heard planes overhead that were potentially going to drop bombs on them mm. and how terrifying that was. So playing this felt a lot more real and a lot more kind of icky, mm. I think, and a lot more disconcerting than any other Undaunted I have played. That's interesting. I... Yeah, no, I, I can't relate to that, obviously, but I, I understand where you're coming from because it's like you finally got that perspective of what makes this, what makes some people just nope out of these yes, games immediately. Yeah, very much. Yeah, okay. Very much. Well, that's and, interesting. Uh, and I think I think it does come across as a little unsensitive because I couldn't understand that before and I had to have this experience well, hey, for me to you know, to everyone know gets their learning moment, right? That's I, I think that's fine. Um I, I feel really bad for what effectively sounds a negative review because the game is good. It's more undaunted. It does innovative things. It changes up the formula. I just feel like maybe, you know, the formula was good to begin with, but now it's been around for so long that it has to go into these new directions. And I think a lot of people will enjoy the new direction. I just wasn't one of them. I It, it felt clunkier than the previous ones still clever still innovative and interesting but clunkier richard says disappointed to see that the undaunted series continues to replay the hits with battle of britain would like to see the series explore lesser known stories from the war or expand into different conflicts entirely its position as the most popular war game series is pretty secure i think they can afford to take some risks i mean at the expense of sounding incredibly ignorant i'm just gonna let people know that i don't know anything about world war ii i really don't have enough knowledge at all to comment on what is a hit battle oh my god that sounds so weird saying that. <laughs> um I, I i just don't know enough but i empathize with the sentiment please do more interesting things yes martin agrees with that too they say I'd have liked to blow explosive charges under the ice while Soviet battalions try to invade Finland on foot in the winter of 1939 to 40. Again, ignorant, but sure, sounds good. And Fenn says, as someone who doesn't enjoy historical warfare, I really want to see them give us either a fantastical or science fiction version of Undaunted. Well, given uh, David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin's design background, mostly operating within uh, war game scenarios, it's likely not going to happen but yes actually their skill for emergent narrative is unquestionable right i think they do that really well and if they took that into more speculative directions i think the result would be fascinating uh i i, I would like to see that even though i suspect the designers probably have 
no interest to visit those territories because they've designed plenty of games and they haven't so far. You know what I'd quite like to see? Like a home front style game where it takes place, like not in the battles exactly, but what people were doing at home. Yeah, that would be interesting. I agree. Yeah, I think that'd be a cool setting. This is on the subject of World War II as well, but it's more about Maquis. Uh, and Emma says, Maquis is the only World War II game I'll play. Living in Brittany, the art is deeply thematic and the town depicted on the map still closely resembles those that I see near me today. I'm far from an expert on the subject, but the stories told by the missions resembles those that I've heard told by local people here or that have been discovering when visiting different museums and historic sites across the country. Stories of very ordinary men and women making extraordinary efforts to resist the occupation of the Nazis. I've been to Brittany. You took me to Brittany. It was really nice there. Mm. Uh, where did we go? Wren? Yeah. Like a little village near Wren, right? Yeah. I mean, incredibly pastoral scenic and and so beautiful and there's clearly like a very entrenched way of life there you know where every everyone's very communal and uh it's nice to hear that uh mckee represents that well um i don't know enough about Brittany to to really authoritatively comment on that but i'm glad that it is you know um to someone who lives there it it, it does translate that very well you've been to Brittany more than i have haven't you no i've only been there once with you oh i was hoping for like a more expert opinion from you but i was shot down i lived in con which is in normandy so i've popped over to Brittany with you because i had a friend that that lived there but we did go when i when i was in normandy we went to the beaches uh, and had a talk about how the beaches of normandy were affected which was a fun day out especially for my german friend do we have any more cheerful games coming up, Elaine? We do. Hamlet comes from publisher Mighty Boards by designer David Chirkop and with the artist Yusuf Artun. So the next two games are sort of uh, sharing a motif where both of them are Euro games where you have a shared board where the actions of one player greatly impact what another player can do. And whilst uh, Autobahn, which we're going to discuss in a moment, leans heavily more towards the sort of gameplay you can expect from Brass. Hamlet, or Mini Ham, I guess, uh, can be more described as, I guess, Splotter Light. Would you agree with Splotter Light? There's a little bit of Splotter, Why? maybe? No? Why? Well, that's that's the word. That's the buzz on the street. It's well, like Splotter Light. Splotter Light. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, I, maybe I've not played enough splotters to answer that question. I didn't feel like it was a splotter type game. Well, I think where that emerges from is that there is that shared map and your actions affect what other people... It's very symbiotic, right? And there's also those milestones. Like, first to do this, first oh. to do that. And that's that food chain magnet I bit see. of, like, first to get there. So I, I'm also going to burst the splotter balloon. I think... The difference with something like Splotter is that Splotter games are highly evocative of the theme. There is some evocation of theme in Hamlet. Uh, for example, the goal of the game is to build a church and you're all contributing towards this church. And obviously 
building parts of the church will score more points. And then when the church is done, the game is finished. And as you have kindly informed me, a hamlet is a village that does not contain a church. That's the definition. In England. In England, right? And once the church is built, hamlet is over, right? How thematic. Um, but the arc and emergent narrative of the game is very abstracted to the point where it doesn't have these thematic evocations it has these nice charming moments where you know all the tiles are higgledy piggledy that you build of the village right so you start with like some basic stuff there's the half-built church there's a farm it makes wheat the lumber mill makes wood and then the uh stone quarry makes stone i don't know right like that's that's the four feature oh then there's the trader right where you can the buy market. some res- market yeah buy some resources and the town hall yeah so this there's, there's that basic stuff and then you build parts of the hamlet around it um and they all affect what other players can do and the beautiful part is that like when you build a building that's not your building that's everyone's building and they can go there and do things that the building does and utilize it um, and so that's that's nice. I, I like that part of the game. The arc of the game, however, is get more victory points. The things you do uh, give you victory points. Why would you build something? It will give you victory points. Uh, and what's the ability on that? Well, you will probably be able to get some victory points. There's a lot of victory points. And I wouldn't normally bring that up as a criticism because it's a pretty established trope. But it really impinges on the storytelling aspects of the game where it feels kind of abstracted to a point where I've lost interest in Hamlet about halfway through because I was like, oh, what can I engineer here? Some victory points. And I'm not saying that there isn't strategic depth and underpinnings in that, but it felt like the emergent narrative hit a really hard stopgap and it was just like, well, let's get some victory points. Yeah, that's kind of what I said to you about halfway through the game. I kind of, I'd done everything I really wanted to do, mm. but the game was only half over and I still needed to do more things to get more points. So I was just looking at ways to get points. And I really, really wanted to like this game. because well, it has clever mechanisms, right? Yeah, I like the fact that you do not take the resources. The resources stay on the board and you just use them. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're gathering resources that you're going to spend later. The resources on the board you use immediately. Mm. Uh, I like that. I like the fact that the donkeys uh, will let you move yeah. uh, different resources to different places. That's that's quite storytelling-y. You know, yeah, donkeys yeah, yeah. move stuff. Uh, but I just didn't, I just found it a little bit dull. Well, let me fill in these mechanisms a little bit more. So uh, what you have is basically, it's it's kind of like a worker movement uh, game, I guess. You have one worker to start with, you'll get more, and you also have a donkey, right? And the idea is that anywhere you go, you can either mo- create resources or... Um, try and move these resources to the place where you are at to then utilize them to do some sort of an action on the building that you are at. So um, when you create resources, they just stay on the board. So if you go to the lumber mill to make some wood, you just made some wood, you get paid for that, some money, and, and there's wood now in the village, right? And all the buildings are either connected by a road or you want to connect them by a road uh, because if the road is not printed on a tile in a way where it like leads to this building there is no road basically you can you have this wooden bridge 
piece that you can build and oh now there's a road right and so you you want these resources then in other buildings to utilize the abilities like for example you could convert the grain into milk right which is like a high advanced resource that you could then sell for victory points somewhere right but to get that grain towards the place that makes the milk you have to move them and resources by themselves can only move one tile but which is fine at the beginning of the game but as more and more and more and more tiles get added and again they are very higgledy piggledy they are non-standard shapes they're bendy and like they're they're like hard corners and all of that right but there's there's a lot of different shapes that are possible and so like this this village clearly expands and the networks become unruly and that's where the donkeys come in because you're trying to make these chains from donkeys where if a resource goes into a tile with a donkey then that donkey can kick the resources to the next tile and if there's a donkey on that tile it can kick the resources to the next tile and so on and on and on and donkeys unlike your workers we you can just go anywhere in the village they for some reason are slower than people and so they'll only move one tile um so you're often thinking about how can i navigate this chain that i've created to get the resources that I've created to where I want. And because nothing belongs to you. So you created the resources, they stay on the board. If you made some wood and, you know, that's your turn done, right? The other player can then take the wood that you've made, use it for something else, and suddenly you made the wood for them. You're not getting the benefit because by the time your turn comes back, there's no more wood. So it's a very opportunistic game where it, like, really feeds into spotting opportunities and exploiting them which feels very passive aggressive for his this nice pastoral hamlet is that where the splotter comes in as well i guess so mm. yeah i think i think that's that's the splotter element yeah yeah that you've made resources that you want to use but then someone comes in and whips them away before you get a chance to do it yeah yeah i i'm not sure who this game is for i think that's my biggest problem the the rule book is not clear it's higgledy piggledy mm. uh it wasn't easy to look things up in there were there was terminology in it um you know sometimes it said road and sometimes then it said path and it said bridge and you're like what is it is it differentiating between the roads you build yourself or is it not in some cases it was some cases it wasn't uh and it just wasn't very and the artwork is is very nice i like the artwork a mm. lot it's very cute it's very uh bright and cheerful and it's you know this town that you're this church that you're building in this hamlet is is looks like a nice place to live um but there is so much push and pull in this game uh that it, it's not a game that would be i don't think suitable for someone who doesn't play or hasn't played any board games like i don't think this is a game that we would play with my parents no absolutely not this is this is way too opportunistic and convoluted and gamey to to be accessible for you know broad audiences but it doesn't have enough to keep me in as someone that does play a lot of games mm, mm. there are definitely interesting parts to it but i felt like there was just some interest missing some quirky part that really elevated the design to more than it was because it it, it felt like it nailed the first part down completely like yep you've got a cool system of like transporting goods and there's like opportunistic moments and you kind of have to go with the flow and that's all fine that works there just isn't that zhuzh moment that just puts it over the top 
and makes it go, yeah, I want to play this over and over again. I feel like I've played it. I'm good. <laughs> you know, like, cool. That was fun and interesting. And I, I had a nice moment with it. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I've got a lot else to say about it. I think it was fine. Wow. That's, that's the sort of Damocles, pretty much, for any board game. <laughs> oh, you're tilting your head back in dismay. Because <laughs> I don't want to be too, too negative about it. I had yeah. a nice time playing it with you. Definitely clever ideas. I just don't have a desire to keep playing it over and over. Can I add uh, some notes on the production? You mentioned the rule book. There is a wooden inset that you construct, and I appreciated that. So that was cool. But it still has baggies. So that that feels really like, because there's still plastic in the game, right? Uh, because the wooden insert is not very good at keeping things, all things, flush in the box. The big tiles, they stay where they're meant to be, and that's fine. But then the little bits still have to go in baggies. They're not self-contained. If you don't put them in baggies, they're going to fly all over the place. Yeah, on production, actually, I do want to say one thing that was really good about this. It was very clear which tiles were the starting tiles, which tiles went in the bag at the beginning of the game, and which tiles you had to keep separate. There's one more note. Uh, so we mentioned the higgledy-biggledy tiles. They're fun, but the problem is that, is that you're meant to draw them unseen from a bag. And of course, the shape of them is very telling. Now, they found a workaround for this, which is... Uh, you get these like little small cardboard chits that are meant to represent the tiles, so you just chuck them in the bag instead of the actual cardboard tiles. And then when you draw the relevant small chit, it says, oh, it's this tile, so you just put that one out. Nice. Not included in the retail version. No, that's annoying. Wh why would you do that? That's That feels like like a crucial element towards the game because whenever I put in, if I know this game well, if I want to play it over and over again, I don't, but some people will, right? Because they bought it, they like it, you know, that that feels like it has to be in the retail version, right? It's another one of those Kickstarter things where they've made the game worse by not they haven't given something extra for the kickstarter the upgrade like there's there's a, a 3d church that you can get in the in the kick or could have got in the kickstarter version which is lovely in the normal one you just have flat cardboard which, which is fine which is which is absolutely fine the game is still functional it works perfectly well but if you want a little upgrade or oh, a lovely 3d church super but to have something that is functionally important not included in the main game without doing the kickstarter is very annoying. I think that's all I have to say about the little ham. I had to watch a video to learn how to play Hamlet. Uh, and in the last episode of this podcast, I asked how you prefer to learn a game or how you learn them best. Roger says, for myself, I like to read the rules, but with the components to hand so that I can move them around and try out various operations. I think I'm pretty good at inhaling and decoding a rule book, sometimes even at the table while everyone is waiting for me to teach them. But I have strong feelings about the way they're written. In particular, they shouldn't be written by the game designer who will knows in depth how it works but by someone ideally a technical writer who has just learned the game in its published version i think that applies to so many more things than just rule books in board game design i think a lot of the times the designer is responsible for so much of it like theming writing narrative 
Um, and, and sometimes you do have that one person that's good at all of those things. More often than not, they are not good at all of those things. They are maybe good at one, max two of those things, and then the others are lacking. Um, so I, I'm, I'm all for more delegation of, of you know, if, if the publisher can afford it, obviously, you know, for like certain people who are good at certain things, you know, doing certain tasks. The most obvious example of this is, you know, there are there are some publishers where or designers where they do the artwork themselves. They're very rare, and it's very rare that the artwork is also then good, or that the game is also then good, right? Because you have either the artwork lacking or the design lacking. So that's why you have a board game designer and a board game artist, right? Um I think that should apply to more things in board games, including rule books. Kellen says, it largely depends on my needs. If I'm wanting to know how a game works to see if I'm interested in playing it, a lot of video reviewers give an overview and are a great way to learn the system of the game in general. If I've bought the game and I'm ready to learn how to play, sometimes I'll watch a video where they just cover how to play. I usually do this for heavier games that can summarize the rulebook faster than I can read it, but often for light or medium weight games, I'll just sit down with the rulebook, set up the components as if to play and work through the manual myself. That's so funny. I do the complete opposite. I like games. I just I just watch a video, you know. Why? Because I, I have enough attention span to sit through a short video. You know, like we, we mentioned uh, Rodney Smith's tutorial on Turing Machine in a previous episode. And so that was really good because it just explained it. And I think if I read the rule book, I'd be like, how does this work? And, and no, this person showed it to me in seven minutes, right? That was perfect. But whereas there is a longer, more complicated game. I mean, I will probably watch a video as well because I need the additional background of being able to visually see it. But a rule book... I can take at my own pace. Same issue for me with audiobooks. A book I can take at my own pace. If I feel a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of text, I can just pause and it's fine, you know? And it's the same with rules. If I'm reading like a really large manual, I can read a little bit, go, okay, that was a lot to take in. I can just sit down for a moment and internalize all of that, right? Think about what have I just read? Which part is important? You know, what do I need to make sure I memorize? Or, um, you know make a point of it during the teach when I'm teaching the game to someone else. Uh, with the video, I find it frustrating to have to kind of be stop, rewind, go through that again. Uh, so I will often read a rule book first for a complicated game. And then maybe if I feel like I need to do a supplemental video watch. But that's the beauty of it. Many people learn in different ways. There is no wrong way to learn it. It's just a matter of finding the right way for you because different people absorb information in different ways and that's why a variety of tools for learning games is important yeah i agree with that i thought i was terrible at learning games from rule books but uh if the rule book i need something with a lot of examples i think and mm -hmm. examples that don't give uh separate information from what the main paragraphs in the rule book so i need it to explain that part of the game and then say for example this happens yeah and right? when an example talks about a completely new thing it's like what are you doing stop I, sometimes i even miss a rule if it does that yeah because it's hidden away an example because if you think you understood you go oh i don't need an example in this <laughs> right. case right like right. no turns out you did <laughs> 
Our last game is Autobahn, which comes from publisher Alley Cat Games by designers Fabio Lopiano and Nestor Mangoni with artist Javier Gonzalez Cava. So, much like Hamlet, it is a game where you all build a thing communally on the map. In this case, it's the Autobahn. Is it fun, fun, fun? I, sorry, I deliberately queued you up for that, didn't I? Yes. Um, I have, since the last episode, listened to the uh, Craftwork 17 song. 17-minute version of it. <laughs> it was a trip, uh, as all Craftwork songs are. feel like there is something communal between that Craftwork song and Autobahn, the board game, because it is quite convoluted and overwrought and goes into many different motifs and comes back to them at some points um, and just sometimes gets lost within itself, which I don't think is maybe very kind to Autobahn, the board game. But I do not have any desire to play this game again, Um, even though I recognize it was doing a lot of cool things. So you are building the Autobahn, uh, which is, you know, you, you have you have a big map of Germany and it takes place over three periods. So you have like 40s to 60s and 60s to 90s and then modern times uh, or something like that. I, I might have gotten these numbers slightly wrong, but that's the sort of general idea. Um, uh, after the 90s, the East German side of Germany opens up so you can build there as well. So you have this all, all this additional space. Uh, but you're building this autobahn to score points. And the way you score points is kind of, once again, very opportunistic because there are like these little opportunities dotted across the map. If you're the first to build a road there, you're going to get some points. You also have these goal cards where you want to uh, not just build, but improve roads uh, between two certain cities that are exclusive to you. So you're focusing on the part of the autobahn that's relevant for you, but maybe it overlaps with another player. So they might be improving it as well. And 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 because you're creating one network of roads, effectively, between all players, naturally someone has to drive through it. Who drives through it? You do as well. You have trucks. And these trucks... Uh, you know, will reach various destinations and they carry different goods and you'll put the goods on the truck. You put a little container and the truck moves through the roads and then it might stop at service stops. And who built those service stops? You did. And, or maybe another player. And if it's another player, you're giving them points. And if it's you, you're giving yourself massive bonuses. So it's this weird conjoining of, of a root network building game that is also a pick up and deliver yeah right and these two elements feel so disparate but they also intermesh in this weird way because obviously where you can pick up from and where you can deliver to is limited by what you've built on the map but also it's the one of the predominant ways of scoring you points and scoring points is weird again because building roads lets you put people into offices who work for the road construction department. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, you're putting people into offices and there's different departments where these people could go. And those departments are relating to various different sections of the map. So if you build on the white section of the road, you get to put a person in the white department. And then eventually that person will travel up the echelon ranks. 
the white department. They don't. <laughs> <laughs> it will travel up the echelon of the ranks of the department and eventually go into these offices. And these 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 offices then will be scoring opportunities and it'll say, this one employee scores you one point per that sort of thing that you've done in the game. So, for example, per number of service stations you've built. And then it promotes, if you promote that person further, it will score two points per service station. And you can then promote another person into the one-point space. And so now every service station gives you three points, effectively. And the weird part of the game is that is the only thing that scores you points. So, effectively... What you're trying to do is you're trying to get these promotions. And one of the ways to get promotions is to drive the truck. Another way to get a promotion is to deliver goods. So it's all intermeshed in that same sort of way that brass is, where one action leads you to another, to another, to another, to another, and then back full circle as you're kind of cycling and repeating and reacting to what the other players are doing on the map. I enjoyed this game a lot more than you did, I think, because we finished it and you were like, all right, okay, I'm done with this game. Mm. And But I want to play it again. I enjoyed the interaction between building the routes and the kind of pick up and deliver type mechanisms uh, and the way the workers moved up and you could promote them and, and the, way the, way, the way you played the cards. Mm. So when you played the cards, um, you could then pick them back up for coins or... Um, play them all and then pick them all up for free and it wasn't an action but you didn't get any money for doing it uh, and then once you'd played the card then that was out of your ability to play until you picked it back up yeah that's that's another element that's sort of riffing on brass but works in a slightly different way that's maybe more similar to concordia where each card you have a color and that denotes what region you can take the action in but you also have like the five possible actions and there's a certain limit as to how many times that action you can perform that can be upgraded for the course of the game. So you're always sort of constricting the options of what you can do. That's nice, I agree. And you really have to think carefully about how you want to upgrade your cards because there was one card that I thought, this is going to be amazing because it was effectively uh, a wild root card. So you could build anywhere or move your truck from anywhere. And then I never used it because it actually didn't help with what I wanted to do. Mm. Uh, and so I should have bought something else that would have made a lot more sense. Um, so there are there are these decisions that you have to make in the game about where you what kind of uh, goods you want to d deliver, uh, because depending on the type of good, you get a different type of bonus. Uh, if you deliver the good that the country wants, then you get an upgrade or, or, or some kind of bonus. If you don't, if you deliver something the country doesn't necessarily want, you just get paid for it. Uh, and you can do both of those things. And I like that about it. I like that there were so many different things that you could try and do. There, are, there were different ways and directions you could take this game in. Uh, because at one point, like I realised that I probably wasn't going to do that well on service stations. So I mm. kind of thought okay I'm not going in that direction I'm going to try something else and we went in completely different directions I lost really badly I know that but we went in totally different directions and it didn't seem that I had lost that badly until we finished the game <laughs> yeah because at the end of the day again all all that scores you points is the promotions you get so uh, each promotion pushes a person up the ranks and that's going to score you more points um I, I don't disagree with you right like mm. so there is there is definitely a lot of 
tangible, meaty, gamey things in the game. They, there are so many disparate elements, and they all do connect. I think the difference between a design like Brass and a design like Audubon is, uh, if you haven't watched the video we did on Brass recently, is that everything works in a closed loop where the closed loop doesn't really... It, it, it feeds itself rather than pointing or funneling upwards into one thing, right? Um, it, it often makes you kind of examine all elements of the game and find the right opportunity to do, to do the right thing. Whereas here, there is a very deliberate funneling. You can do a lot of things, but you better get those promotions or it, it, none of it matters, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that was my downfall in the end, that I didn't concentrate well enough on, on the promotions. I just couldn't see how to get them. And I think you tuned in a lot better to how to get these promotions and, and make this work and get these points at the end of the game. And and I think that if I play it again, I will also know what I'm doing a lot better than I did the first, the you know, when we played it before. Okay, so obviously this is, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of reviewing this after after one long extensive play. It's not, this, is, this isn't like... You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take our opinions, you know, as, as something that's very hard and concrete. But people do. Uh, oh, well, okay, that's why I'm briefing them, because, you know, I just have no interest in playing this game again. And I want to explain why I don't have interest playing playing this game again, because I think maybe that'll help some people recognize whether it's for them or not. Um, so I think there are a lot of interesting things in it. There's clearly a lot of design work. There's clearly a lot of thought that's been put in. You know, how how uh, East Germany opens up and how that impacts the elements of the game. And there's, there's many, like, cool design quirks where you can tell, oh, like, we were thinking about this. But the things that that make this just not as good as some other games of a similar type that I've played, like Barrage or Brass, where it's all, like, it's all happening on one map and, like, how you affect each other really spotting these opportunity moments and just kind of being, yeah, I got that done and that's going to do this and then that and like things are flowing or they're not flowing and like, ah, how can I pull it back? So the, the, the key difference moments for me where this game falls down is one, there's dissonance because there are moments like where you're driving a truck and you have to deliver a good and that makes sense thematically. But then you realize that you get a lot more points if you don't deliver the truck because delivering the truck takes more actions. Whereas if you just constantly drive it through different service stations that you own, one of the bonuses you can unlock for service stations is to get a promotion, which is more valuable than anything else in the game. So you just go, truck, don't deliver it, start a new truck, go through a service station. Don't, And you just keep cycling that over at the end of the game because it's more valuable than anything else you can do. So that's point number one. And maybe there there is balance and strategies. I'm not saying it's the game is unbalanced. I just find it uninteresting in that way. Number two, it's messy. It is... There's so many of these little elements that connect. And the board doesn't do a very good job of telegraphing of all the little nuances, all the little sidesteps to the rules, all the little kind of... Um, moments where you need to remember that if you've done this and this has happened and this has happened then also this happens and you're like ah I forgot this a little bit so we often found ourselves just forgetting these little moments and yes this is something that would obviously go away with more plays but also I found that more overbearing than in most Euro games where there were just so many 
of these niche cases of sequencing that you needed to remember where it's just like oh yes of course and this happens uh, and th- there's just so many tidbits that i found it just slightly annoying the rule book is not good it's just frustrating to learn from and it leaves more questions than it answers because it feels like they explain the core elements but then as soon as you spend three seconds thinking about how it actually works in play you're going wait a minute but how does this work and how does that work and how does that work and there's so many like different action cards that you can unlock and then these action cards come in and you go well okay i understand that this is a multicolor card but how would it work in this situation and it's like you have to go to bdg so there's a lot of these like stop starts to gameplay that I feel really impacted my enjoyment of it. And then add to that, that sort of funneling all towards promotions. It's just not as good and clean as other games in the genre. I can't comment on the rule book because I didn't read it. Uh, your second point, I, I don't think I do agree with that because sequencing is important, but I don't think it's any more complicated than something like Sky Mines where sequencing is important. As long as you know that sequencing is an important thing that you need to do, then... Oh, yeah, there's no reference cards as well. I forgot <laughs> That's to a add. Good point. Yeah. Number four. Uh-huh. Uh, your first point, though, I, I do agree with you. I Maybe there is some kind of other strategy. But once you realize that if you just kept going past your service stations and didn't deliver the goods, because it's legal at any point to just go, OK, well, I'm not going to deliver this good and just move your truck take your truck off because it's legal at any point to just go okay i'm not going to deliver this good and take your truck off and then try and deliver a different good yeah that that's a weird moment in the game uh and again this is a euro game with with a lot of different paths and meat and you know just things you can do and different strategies and different things to explore. If if you are into it, if you bought into it, I think there's enough gameplay there to keep it interesting and to keep it, you know, something that you can replay and find new depth in it. That I am just not even going to question, right? I think just the play experience for me fell down a little bit. Um, I'm glad to hear it didn't for you, though. Yeah, well, I'd like to play again. I think just all the all the things coming together, the the learning when was best to play what colour card. Uh, because, for example, the black route that you're building is partly pre-built, um, and but you only have one black card. Uh, and so you can use this black card pretty much all the... You could use it all the time, mm. uh, but you only have one. So it's a really thinky moment. When am I going to use this black card and when am I going to use the rest of the, the cards? Uh, and I, I just found all these kind of intersecting bits. Should I put out a, a petrol station or should I do something else? Should I upgrade my trucks? Like, because you have these kind of tech trees almost that you, you build mm. up on. Uh, and, and thinking, which one am I going to start building? And then do I diversify? Because you can't complete them all. Am I going to diversify into another one or do I just keep building that one? Uh, and how will I score points? How am I going to get these points at the end of the game? How do I um, promote my my workers? Just all of those elements together. I just I've, I found it really enjoyable. The the puzzle mm. was just came together very nicely for me. Well, 
I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the black colored uh, part of the road because it's very interesting in that it is pre-built. So the the card that you because you have like one of each card at the beginning, like one of each color, so you can affect the board equally, right? But because the black one is pre-built, there is a point in the game where there's like nothing much you can do on the black route anymore. You can still launch trucks from it because it's a good uh, truck launching point because all the truck launching cities are on the black route, right? So the card is relevant. But if you're not into the truck strategy, for example, you could get rid of the card entirely. You can just remove it from your deck, replace it with something else. But then maybe there's a key moment where you wish you had it. And so there are many of these nuances in the game. But I think what that makes for me is a game that is trying to hit a lot of the same notes, like, like Barrage and Brass, where I know I mentioned them before. But it is just because of those nuances much less elegant as a design than any of those and and add to that the bad rule book the uh lack of reference cards at least in the there's mention of the reference cards in the rule book but i haven't found them in the box (laughs) so maybe again this is the retail versus kickstarter version question if if kickstarter back has got a reference card and retail backers didn't there's something very wrong with that production the fact that the trucks don't fit on the roads, but they have to travel along the roads. Oh, that was annoying. Yeah. And there's also another piece that you put on the trucks, so they're not balanced properly. There's just a lot of little things like that that I was just I just couldn't get past that. The lack of elegance in the design, where it felt, you know, someone's ideas just exploded, right? And they weren't quite as contained as I wanted them to be. Uh, and and then you know the production quite not quite matching what I expect from a game, I took it down to a place where, like, I'm just good never playing this again, you know? Yeah, I understand that. I agree completely with all, all those points. The, the trucks falling all over the place, not balancing on the roads, and that was, that was all very annoying. But I just enjoyed the experience overall. It wasn't as... You're right, it wasn't as tight or uh, put together or smooth as something like brass, uh, but I just enjoyed the experience. Well, that's nice. I am glad we have two differing opinions on a game because that makes for a better podcast. That's all the games. If you have anything to say about them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. We had a couple of comments about Distilled, which we spoke about in a previous episode. Logan says, My first play of Distilled was at five players. It took five plus hours since I had to teach everyone. It was very long, but everyone had a lot of fun and were excited to play again. Eight out of ten... Real booze makes it 10 out of 10. And Will, who describes themselves as the guy that locked eyes with Efka over a bargain bin in 2015, which I will explain later, says, In listening to your chat about regional drinks, I was stunned to think you thought Iron Brew was only loved by those that grew up with it in the same way as Eastern European fermented soft drinks are. It's frankly blasphemy. One is entirely more niche than the other. I disagree. I think that's just a matter of perspective. I've never heard of Iron Brew before I came to this country. So it's not as universally known. And I'm sure that many... Eastern European fermented bread drinks are, are not known to most people here. So from my less Western perspective, they are entirely the same. 
Is kvass or like gira, are they like national drinks? Are they considered like national I think so. Drinks? Yeah, 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 definitely. I, I don't know if we have a national drink particular, a tea, I guess. I mean, we don't even, England doesn't even have mm. a national anthem. So, you know, we probably don't have a national drink really either. I, this is going to upset a lot of people because I've, I've converted now to Iron Brew. But my first experience of Iron Brew was, what is this thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's just sort of fruity and bubblegummy. And I, I don't know. You know, know. How, how you eat, when you eat American candy, you go, ah, it just tastes of chemicals, right? Mm. That was my impression of Iron Brew. Ah, it just tastes <laughs> of chemicals. <laughs> funny thing about iron brew was once do you remember we went through the airport mm-hmm. uh, and you can't take obviously you can't take bottles of drink through the airport yeah uh, and i forgot that i had a bottle of iron brew in my bag and i put it through the x-ray machine as normal you know and it went through and fine and it was only about an hour later when i opened my bag i realized that bottle of iron brew did not show up as organic material on the x-ray machine so they didn't pull it over but but when you had a pack of cards, a deck of cards in your pocket, that did show up as organic and they pulled you to one side. It's not a good sign for Iron Brew, honestly. Sponsored by Bar. <laughs> not really. Other soft drinks are available. Let me explain why Will describes themselves as the guy that locked eyes with Efka over a bargain bin in 2015. Uh, they, they went on to recount in the email a lovely story about how they were sad that they'd not said anything when they saw you, Efka, at UKGE a few years ago and how they'd wanted to tell you that you were doing a good job, but they never saw you again. Uh, but well. you know fortunately by the magic of this podcast uh this wish has now been granted uh so thank you very much for those nice words will thank you will we appreciate it and thank you for all the comments that you sent to us this time but that's all the cardboard for now thank you so much for listening on the next podcast we'll be talking about cosmoctopus isle of trains and beast so if you have any words of wisdom or questions about those please do let us know in the meantime efka if they want more pun free fun where can they find it and what can they find on our bonus Patreon-only episode this week? Well, I was just going to say, it's not all the cardboard for now. Patrons get a bonus episode. On the bonus episode, we'll be talking about a rolling ride like no other called Madrino, and also our first impressions of City of the Great Machine, a hidden movement game that's more hidden movement than any hidden movement game before it, because it is specifically hidden movement. And finally, what is the game of the episode? I'm going to do a really naughty one here. So please, please don't be mad at me. It's Madrino, which we're only covering in the bonus episode. Uh, the reason for that is that um, I just I just think Madrino was better than, than all the games we've covered in this episode. And it made me laugh a lot. And also, it's very hard to buy and find. It's... It's not worth knowing about unless you're really, 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 really into discovering niche, cool, weird board games. So, Madrino from the bonus episode. And with that, why don't you say goodbye to a lack of reference cards? Goodbye to a lack of reference cards. Goodbye to a lack of reference cards. Goodbye to a lack of reference cards.